I think this sermon this morning might be something like taking a drink from a fire hydrant. I'm going to warn you about that right here. We're going to cover about three weeks of material in one. We won't uh, go into Memorial Day to do that. I'm going to try to do it as quickly as I can, but there is a significant amount of material before us as we continue to take a jet tour through the entire Bible in just two weeks on the theme of well. So it's a considerable amount if you gear yourself up for that. And I'm going to help you out here a little bit with an, an overhead projection that will at least give you the references. I have a big, huge Bible here for huge, with, with uh, huge letters, so if I can find it, I figure you probably can find it in your Bible, and I'm just going to go as fast as I can in turning to a number of scriptures. But it seems to me, as we enter in again on this topic this morning, that there is a dangerous trend among believers to view the Bible as an encyclopedia when it comes to the topic of money. If it is to our advantage... We cross-reference a few passages to establish a point. A Christian owes us some money and we run to the Bible and find, where's that verse that says, oh no man anything, I need that verse. But if on the other hand someone speaks on the topic of money from Scripture, we almost resent it. We react as if that person had picked up a how-to manual and started reading an entry on how to fix a faulty heating element on a stove. I really don't want to hear that. I don't really need to hear that right now. It's not something I'd rather think about. I challenged you last week that it's very wrong to read the Bible in that way. The Bible is not a how-to manual that we thumb through to find answers to topical issues. We must learn to read the Bible much more like a story. A true story from the heart of God in which every line coheres with the overall purpose of the book, which is what? I think if we could summarize it, it is to show us that God is our soul's deepest joy and that it is our duty and privilege to love Him with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourself. If we read the Bible holistically, that is, we see it from cover to cover, is one message. We read it holistically. I think we are liberated from the notion that money is an isolated entry. We are obliged for one reason or another to reference now and then. If we read the Bible properly, we realize that material wealth is an integral aspect of the unfolding of the Bible's storyline. And it is thus an indispensable element in the overall message that God intends for you and me to get when we read the Bible. So my hope is to couple today's message with last week's and to provide something of a jet tour of this vital terrain as we seek to better understand God's will. Here's the analogy I'd like to draw to try to help us with this gargantuan task here this morning. We're, we are in something like a jet airplane, and we're getting an overview. We're flying and looking down on the terrain below. And I'll act as something of a tour guide here to show you something you've seen before, and that is a mighty river, a theme that runs through Scripture. Now last week we looked out this side of the jet airplane. We looked down through the windows and we saw the river over on this side with just occasional reference over here. In other words, we looked at this issue primarily from the Old Testament perspective. Once in a while we looked out the other side of the plane at the New Testament. But today we're going to shift our attention the other way, to the other direction, and I want you to understand that's the same river that you're looking at down there. It's not a different river. Everything that we find in the New Testament is based on what the Old Testament has established about material wealth. 
What have we established? What did we look at last week? You'll notice on this overhead just a summary here. First of all, we put in a few hooks, a few major themes on which we could hang the biblical truth about the Old Testament. Now, we're flying perpendicular to this river, so it's not going to be a long discussion. But we, we saw three points of interest as we looked out this side of the airplane last week. We noted, first of all, the theme, God is Creator. God designed and fashioned the universe. He now sustains it and will someday purge it with fire. What does it mean? The overarching principle is that everything belongs to Him. Everything you own, everything you enjoy on this planet is God's. The second major theme is, God, is man as subduer. God has graciously assigned mankind the privilege of managing God's earth. We are granted the stewardship and joy of caring for the earth, playing with it, discovering its hidden secrets, mining its hidden treasures, and ruling over its vast beauty and bounty. You are part of that process of subduing the earth. As God's stewards, we are commissioned to get wealth, and we are commissioned to subdue material things to the glory of our Creator. But we noted last week that there is an inherent danger in this beautiful earth. What was that danger? It is so beautiful. It is so intriguing. It is so satisfying. It is so replete with potential joys that we can quite easily worship material things rather than God. And this inherent danger leads to a third principle of the Old Testament. And that is, a, that is the theme of God's people as worshipers. Follow this again. If you weren't here last week in particular, knowing the inherent danger of managing material possessions, our Creator from earliest times directed His people to insulate themselves against the corruption of idolatry by ordaining that they sacrifice material wealth in the ongoing act of worship. Beginning with the first family, then we witness God's people subduing the earth, managing God's wealth, and also building altars on which they sacrificed a percentage of their material wealth in the worship of God. Later, we witness the giving of the law to Moses. And what did we find there? In this covenant with his people, God gets very specific about the sacrifices of material wealth. He lays out there three basic guidelines. There was the guideline of the tithe, the 10% of income. He lays out the idea of first fruits. That is that this giving to God begins our financial considerations. It's not at the end of the equations, it's at the very beginning. And then he lays out thirdly the theme of giving what is best. Not choosing the lamb with the broken leg, but giving to God what is best. We start with God, we give to God what is best, and we give a sizable percentage. That is, God's people in the Old Testament were called to give a tithe, and a couple of tithes at different times. We talked about that last week. So we're just looking over this side of the jet airplane once again and remembering these three major points in the stream of revelation concerning material wealth. Now why did God ask of this sacrifice in worship? Because He's a jealous God. He goes on record to say that. Because I am a jealous God. He alone is our Father. He alone is the source of our soul's true and lasting joy. Now if we put together that first principle with the third, it's obvious that God is not asking for our sacrifices of material wealth because He needs to be enriched. He owns it all. 
But he is asking us for these sacrifices of material wealth to establish this point. We will give our heart to no one. And part of the process of nurturing a love for him and maintaining that love against idols is the routine giving of material wealth in the worship of God. So God is creator. He owns it all. Man is subduer. We manage the wealth that God gives to us. And God's people is worshipers. We consistently give in order to demonstrate our love and our loyalty to Him. Now that's not going to secure our love and our loyalty. We can obviously give in a way that is not loyal to God, even give a sizable percentage of money. That's not the point, but there is, there, the principle is established. Now as we turn to this side of the airplane, as we cross this river, we look to this side and we focus on the New Testament stream. The New Testament development of the theme of material wealth, I again say, is part of the same river. It assumes the material that we've seen here. of God is creator, man is subduer, God's people is worshipers. We turn our attention then to the gospel accounts of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Go, if you will, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And then we will turn quickly back to the book of Luke. John chapter 1 and verse 1. Here we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, the only begotten, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Back in Luke chapter 2, we're familiar with the incarnation account, the historical account of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. No matter how hard artists worked to picture Jesus' birth as a warm, fuzzy experience, it was anything but. That stable stunk. It was dirty. It was not private. It was anything but a regal birth. And as Jesus grew up, his economic lot did not change much. He was not the son of a king. He was not the son of a Jewish official. He was not even the son of a tax collector. Jesus grew up in the humble home of a carpenter. That is Jesus we're talking about, your Savior, the Lord of heaven and earth. He did not live in a luxurious mansion or wear purple robes. He did not fare sumptuously every day. He was a poor carpenter that ended his short life as a poor, itinerant preacher living off the gifts of benefactors. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20, Jesus was even able to say with all integrity, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. I want you to think about this again as the Son of God. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus came to this earth and took on that poverty. But Christ's poverty, let's hasten to say, is not primarily mentioned 
or, or not primarily emphasized as a comparison in economic standing between him and other Jews living at his time. His state of poverty is, mo- is seen most clearly when we consider the incarnation itself and compare his incarnation, his taking on flesh, with his pre-incarnate condition. The second person of the triune God relinquished the riches of heaven's splendor for the poverty of human experience. He who fashioned the universe, Colossians 1.16, and who sustains it, Colossians 1.17, took on human flesh. He who knew no pain or limitation took on a body that was subjected to hunger, thirst, exhaustion, pain, torture, and death. What significance is there to this as it pertains to poverty, at least to this theme we find in 2 Corinthians 8-9, that classic statement about Christ humbling himself, about Christ taking on poverty in our behalf. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. Here's the conclusion which the Apostle draws. In the context of the material wealth of the Corinthian church and their gifts to the work of God, he says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might be rich. He was rich. I think it obviously refers to his pre-incarnate condition. He became poor, referencing his incarnation, his coming to earth, that we might be rich, his death in our place, and his resurrection to secure our eternal position with him in the forgiveness of sins. Jesus assumed poverty to do that. Poverty that he might enrich you and me. And that profound truth controls everything that the New Testament has to say to us about our relationship to material wealth. We need to remember that we worship a Savior who left it all. He left everything behind, taking on flesh, leaving the splendors of heaven to redeem us. His poverty is the basis of our wealth. And all that the New Testament says is based on that truth. We look at Jesus' example, just a cursory glance, a quick look. But we look then, secondly, at his teaching. And time fails us here, absolutely, to do more than scratch the surface of Jesus' teaching. What I'd like to do is simply survey a few representative texts of what did Jesus teach us about material wealth? He taught us much. But we look at a few ideas. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning there, Jesus clearly echoes The jealousy of God in Matthew chapter 6. The jealousy of God to secure the worship of His people. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19, Jesus taught us, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt. As subduers of the earth, as managers of God's wealth, Jesus taught us that we must not love or worship money. He goes on to say, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. More on that in a moment. But he says this, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is what drives Jesus to make the statement. 
Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I think what he means there in that analogy is described in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. If your eyes are full of light, if you can see clearly, if you can disconnect yourself from the worship of money, you will see clearly to relate to God. But, verse 24, remember, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Here it is. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. If you serve money, it will be as if you are blind. You won't get the point. You won't see this life. If you, see, if you love God, you'll be able to see money properly. But you can't love both. He taught us that. And he taught us, number two, as subduers of the earth, as managers of God's wealth, he taught us to use money as an investment in eternity. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20, we noted that earlier there. Store, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus taught us that works. You can do that. You can store up treasures in heaven with material wealth down here. It's an amazing revelation. We might think quite differently if it were not for this revelation. Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, he continues on that same theme. Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There should be a complete disconnect between our, our money and our view of our life and who we are and what really matters. But moving on past there, there's so much that could be said. But verse 16, he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now, this is what Jesus says to us then. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. And he illustrated this with the rich young ruler who comes in chapter 18 to Jesus. He says, give up your wealth. Give up your love of money to love me. And the man says, I can't. It's illustrated by the widow who puts that small those small coins in at the temple in chapter 21 it's illustrated also in Luke 16 verse 9 through 15 let's turn there Luke 16 and verse 9 I tell you use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves well, that sounds pretty crass doesn't it use wealth to gain friends for yourself but notice what he says in verse 9, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be 
dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, you, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Perhaps more on that passage later. Next, as managers of God's wealth, Jesus taught us never to worry about money. Luke chapter 12 and verse 22. Luke chapter 12 and verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. If you write in your Bible, it might be good to underline that phrase. Do not worry about your life, because it is a phrase that Jesus definitely wants us to get in our heads. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life, or a single cubit to his height? Depending on the translation, the phrase could be taken either way. But since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry. There it is again. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Jesus also taught us that we must sacrifice wealth in the worship of God. Very little on this, but if we could just go quickly. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23 Matthew 5 and verse 23, Jesus did not teach against the idea of tithing. Of course, he's addressing people who are still under the Mosaic law, but he does say and does teach in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Chapter 23 and verse 23 of Matthew. Chapter 23 and verse 23. So we have instructions there concerning giving at the altar and what one should do. Matthew 23 and verse 23, in this scathing attack against the Pharisees, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. In other words, you cut it down to the last little piece. You give 10% of everything. But notice what he says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter 
without neglecting the former. In other words, you should have tithed in this way, but not in such a way that you neglect these more critical matters. We note from these words that they offer unimpeachable evidence that the purpose of giving to God is to purify the heart. It's not an act that ends in itself. If while you are sacrificing material wealth and the worship of God, you discover in your heart a problem between you and another person, go take care of that. Don't even offer the sacrifice and come back and go to that person later. Go to the person first and take care of it. If you are offering sacrifices but are not growing closer to God, something is missing. What is the point? The point is worship. The point is that the pursuit of worship is the pursuit of God, and it is the pursuit of a pure heart. And giving seeks to pursue that pure heart before the Lord. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, one of those references that Pastor Pratt referred to uh, a couple of weeks ago in our adult class, where we do not have it recorded actually in the Gospels, but a statement of Jesus is recorded here by Luke. Acts chapter 20, in the words of the Apostle Paul, one of the sayings of Jesus that was still alive, verse 35 of Acts chapter 20, he says, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus taught us. Now remember, this is not a word from a greedy media preacher who would really, really like to buy a third yacht. This is a word from Jesus that had nowhere to lay his head. And he says to us, it is better to give than to receive. This is a word from our Lord. The one who left heaven and gave his life to redeem us with his blood. And if you are going to really listen to Jesus here, it means that you will not live life looking for gifts from others. Jesus does not teach us to view our hearts as empty cavities that must be filled with what others give us. He taught us that true joy comes from pouring out our hearts in love to one another. And I know there's hurting people in our church. I know there's hurting people in this world. But it's barking up the wrong tree to look at your heart as an empty cavity that must receive, 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 receive. His love was a pouring out of his life that kept nothing back and expected nothing in return. And he gave it all. It was a love which found its joy not in getting, but in giving. Jesus taught us that. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. You get that little tingle when you're about to buy something you really, really want. And you get it, and there's a pleasure to that, isn't there? And that's not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily evil. As 1 Timothy 6 tells us, God gave us all things to enjoy. But I wonder if we sense that same pleasure, that same joy, that same tingle, that same anticipation when we have the opportunity to give. If we don't, we've not yet been schooled by Jesus on this point. Because he taught us it's better to give than to receive. We need to receive. We need to learn to receive. And we need to learn to receive graciously. And Jesus knew how to receive. 
He was supported, it appears, in his ministry by the money of others. He could receive. We're not talking about that. But he said it's more blessed to give, and he gave what he had. He gave his life and said that's more blessed. He also taught us, as managers of his wealth, he taught us that we must proclaim the gospel to the nations. God taught Adam to subdue the earth by tending the Garden of Eden. He taught the Israelites to subdue the earth by conquering Canaan and erecting on Mount Zion a temple that would serve as the quintessential location where God would be worshipped by His people. In like manner, Jesus commissions His people to manage material resources so as to make known the saving purposes of God to all nations. Now as we look over on this side of the airplane, it's the same river, but it's a different perspective. It's taking a different turn. It's widening. The point now is not to conquer a physical land of Canaan. The point now is to take the Gospel of Christ to all nations. This is our mission as we subdue the earth. I think we continue to subdue the earth in a physical way. But now that takes on much less interest to us as God's people. And we now subdue the earth by proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ to all nations. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. You probably don't need even to turn there. Jesus called us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Baptizing and teaching. Not one of us can physically go to every nation on earth and proclaim the gospel. But if we take this command seriously, we will view wealth as a tool by which to bolster this beachhead here and through this outpost to aid the gospel enterprise throughout the world. And that is a concern of our church, an interest of our church, and needs to always be that we use this, what, we've, what we have and what God has granted us here as a base to help others proclaim the gospel through the world. This is Jesus' teaching, and there probably should be a collective chuckle at this point because it is so thin as to what Jesus taught about money. We haven't even mentioned one of his parables, which many of them are centered upon economic issues and economic uh, considerations. But we must move on, trying to get done in just one day, this whole overview. We look to the church, and we look, first of all, at two examples, the church at Jerusalem. Jesus rises from the dead, he ministers 40 days, ascends, there's the Pentecost baptism of the Spirit, Peter preaches, many Jews were in Jerusalem from around the Middle East, they believed and they stayed. Jerusalem church forms, many without income stay there in the city, and it provides a very unique situation, something very unusual to, or, or unparalleled to our situation here. But nonetheless, there are some principles which come to the surface in the book of Acts. We go first of all to chapter 2. The Jerusalem believers give us a classic example of people who understood that it was more blessed to give than to receive. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and breaking of bread and of prayers. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions. Think about material wealth here. Selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
chapter 4 and verse 32. Chapter 4 and verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that he had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I don't think this is really, truly communal living in the sense that property was shared, but it was, there was no one that was compelled to give everything. They just did. Chapter 5 and verse 4 makes that very clear, that everyone understood your wealth is your wealth. You share what you want to share, but they shared it all. There was such a joy in their relationship to the risen Christ in this particular situation that they were quite willing to give up material wealth in order to care for God's people. There was one group among them, however, that was incapable of getting employment and continuing on there in Jerusalem, and that, were, that was the body of widows there, a considerable number of them. Acts chapter 6 had assembled around the church or with the church and were identifying with it. In chapter 6 and verse 1 we read, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are full of the Holy Spirit, known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And so they did. And the church organizes itself here to collect resources and to minister those resources to those in need. Well, time passed. Jesus did not return. Persecution drove many believers from Jerusalem and churches were planted throughout Asia Minor. Then the Jerusalem church was rocked by a severe famine with this continuing crush of responsibility of widows that were there and others that needed to be cared for, it plunged the believers in Jerusalem into critical financial crisis. Paul has been evangelizing throughout Asia Minor, winning people to Christ, and he speaks of a gift by the Macedonian churches, this classic text in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. It talks about the example of the Macedonian churches in giving. Macedonia is the northernmost Roman province of Greece. It was an impoverished area, it's important for us to note. Impoverished due to the ravages of war and also to oppression. The churches there were made up of largely Gentile believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And he has in mind the suffering Jerusalem believers. Verse 2, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. So Paul apparently looked around and said, Listen, you don't have, you don't have enough to live on here. But they pleaded with him to participate, participate in some way. 
There are, of course, many other examples of believers in the New Testament who use wealth to the glory of God. We hasten on to the church's teaching. Generally speaking, believers are to maintain financial integrity. And for sake of time, we'll not turn to these passages. You're probably familiar with them. But they are to maintain financial integrity. First of all, we're to pay our taxes. Romans 13, 6 through 7. Secondly, we are to pay off our debts. Romans 13 and verse 8. Number three, we are to pay our employees justly. James 5, verses 1 through 4. And number four, we're not to discriminate against the poor. All instructions about financial integrity to God's people. Number two, believers are to be content with what they presently have. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. Verse 18, command them to do good, that is those who have wealth, command them to do good and be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Echoing very clearly there the teachings of Jesus that we can invest in eternity as we give. Number three, believers are to work diligently. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. If anyone does not care for his own, he's worse than an infidel. Worse than an unbeliever. And we looked at these 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonian passages. The call there was very clear. Work hard. Earn your income. Give diligently yourself to the effort of providing for your family. But I would like to look at one very intriguing passage. We've looked at it not too long ago, I think maybe last summer. Ephesians 4 and verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. Because there's just a very interesting twist here that Paul gives to this, um, in this instruction that I think is helpful to us as we consider our need to work and to gain our income. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Notice that the purpose for working is what? The purpose for working is, first of all, to gain income. And why do we gain income? According to this passage, to give it away. A thief is not merely to stop stealing. What is a thief at heart? A thief at heart is really an idolater. He loves money more than he loves God. He even loves money more than he loves people. When a thief is born again, he embraces Jesus Christ as Lord, and thus he enters into a new pattern of life. So he is, number one, follow this, he is to earn an honest living by legitimate work, and he is to demonstrate his denunciation of the idol of wealth. How? 
First of all, by loving others more than their money. He was in the past loving their money more than them, and so he was willing to take that money from them. He's to love others more than their money, and he is now to love others more than his money. And he demonstrates it by giving. So in general terms, we're to be hardworking, tax-paying, debt-paying, honest, just givers. We turn now to characteristics which should mark our relationship as an assembly. We've looked at some general principles of what we are to be. Now we look at the assembly. Very briefly, stick with me a little bit longer. It's leadership. First, we are warned that false teachers will worship money. Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. Titus 1.10, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group, group of people saying that, uh, purporting a different way of salvation than Christ crucified and faith alone in Him. Verse 11, They must be silenced because they are running, ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of of dishonest gain. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter two and verse three. Speaking of false teachers, he says, In their greed these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. In their greed, they will say these things. In their greed. Verse 14 of the same chapter. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. And a cursed brood. Experts in greed. And then the book of Jude, right before Revelation, the book of Jude, verse 12. Jude 12. These men, these false teachers, and maybe I just read verse 11. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Profit, that's what's at the heart of it. How do genuine shepherds serve? Back to the book of Titus chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Titus 1, verses 7 through 8. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, but not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must not have a desire for dishonest gain. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, speaking again of what leaders are to be in the local church. What do the false teachers do? Well, how do they operate? They want money. They're working for greed, for selfish purposes, to gain off of others. They don't love people because they don't love God. 
and therefore they love people's money more than they love people. They're quite happy to tell somebody they went to heaven last week and they came back to tell you the story about it, and etc., etc., because they love money more than they love people. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. I'll read it, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Here's now how proper shepherds are to lead the flock. Be shepherds of God's flock, or shepherd God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not loving money, but loving people is the way a leader should operate within the church. So Paul epitomized this, I think. He spoke of it. He also epitomized this truth in Philippians chapter 4. This is such a, a beautiful passage. We don't have time to get into it, but the... the uh, in the right sense of the word, the psychology that he uses here on the Philippians is amazing, uh, as he argues. But it also reveals, it opens up his heart. They have enriched him. Notice how Paul responds. Philippians chapter 4 and verses 11 and following. Philippians 4 and verse 11. I'm not saying this. Verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. In other words, you've cared very much about me, but you've not had opportunity to give me a gift recently. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Well, if we looked at Paul, we'd say, he's in need. You, I guarantee it. But he's saying, I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Everything. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, says it again, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. We hear again echoes of Jesus lay up treasures in heaven. I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. There's the epitome, I think, of a true servant of God and what a leader of a church and of churches and God's people ought to be. I don't need any gift. I rejoice in the gift because I know that it means that you are laying up treasures in heaven. I rejoice with you. You will be rewarded beyond measure. But as for me personally, I can live with nothing. I can live with much. It makes no difference. The source of my life, the security of my heart, my love is tied to Jesus Christ. He could strip it all away if he chose to do so. A couple of points of application, just real quickly on this point. Let's remember, as a church, that it is evil for an assembly to permit a leader to serve for the love of money. The church is to be led by men who love God and who love people, 
but who are free of the entangling menace of loving money. We need to remember that. And we need to stick to it as a church. I do. We all do. Number two, I would say this by way of application. I would very much encourage you. I would exhort you. Guard yourself against the doctrine of any Bible teacher outside the church who loves money. Not only must we maintain the integrity of the leadership in our assembly, but don't tag into those teachers who are serving for money. Now, I know that requires something of a judgment call, which we cannot ultimately make, but it's really not all that difficult to see who's laying up treasures on earth because of the word that they preach and teach. I would encourage you, avoid anyone who's preaching for money because they don't love God, and that causes them to interpret the scriptures with an inherent lack of integrity. They don't love God, and if they don't love God, they don't love you, and then when they go to the Bible, they lay it open so that they can fill their coffers. It's false doctrine. You can just count on it. We look at its leadership. We look, secondly, at the church's giving. This will end. Hang on, just a little longer. It's giving. The New Testament is silent about tithing. That is, giving a 10% of gross income, as the Old Testament commands. Tithing is a principle, I think, that's established in the Old Testament. It has been the practice of worshipers since the earliest days of history, and I don't know that it necessarily even needs to be mentioned in the New Testament, but the New Testament does not command or even mention tithing in the context of the local church. Rather than being tethered to the law of tithing, the New Testament commends the grace of giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. I think that says essentially the spirit of New Testament giving. We have come in Jesus Christ to a place of sonship, that is to a place of maturity. There are things that we need to lay out in our families with children, commands. You will not do this. You, you can do this, or you must do this, and you will not do this. We have to lay out these principles and these laws and these rules just to gain some sense of order and structure in our families. But there's a place that comes when we don't need to lay down those laws for the children. When is that time? When they do it on their own. When it comes from their own desires. And I think that is something of what we see in Jesus Christ, in our relationship with Him. The command to tithe is not laid out there specifically. He says, as adult children of God, as friends of Christ, give. Let it flow. I'm not going to tell you it's got to be 10%. There's all kinds of different circumstances. There's all kinds of different people. There's all kinds of different situations. Just give. Give freely. And remember, verse 7, that it is a grace from God. Now, the Old Testament established the tithe, and don't forget about that. The New Testament is based on that truth, but I say to you as adult children, give as God showers down His grace upon you. So in other words, I think God works graciously in the heart of His people to motivate them to give 
away wealth for the good of others and the advance of his cause. I really have serious doubts that God, in his grace, would motivate us to give less than what the Old Testament saints gave. I don't, I don't understand how that would be or why that would be. There might be some circumstances where that's essential, and I think there's room for that in the New Testament, but I don't think that would be normal. I don't think it is usually poverty or unprecedented circumstances that keep God's people from tithing. It's usually depravity that keeps us from tithing. A love of money and a lack of faith in God is what's at the heart of it, if we're honest, I think. Driven by the motivation that the God who owns it all has given His all for me and will reward in eternity whatever I do to His glory here, we are to be a giving people. We're to be a church motivated by an enthusiasm to marshal material wealth to advance the cause of Christ. Is there a spirit of dutiful obligation in this? Is there, listen to this, is there a spirit of guilt? Is there a spirit of discouragement or fear that God will punish that marks the giving commended to us by Paul in the ninth chapter of this letter? 2 Corinthians chapter 9. What is the spirit here? Beginning at verse 1. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, that is, these gifts to the Jerusalem believers. Verse 2, for I know your eagerness to help. And I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm was stirred most, uh, has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. I told the Macedonians you'd be ready. I hope you're ready. Verse 4, for if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangement for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Now remember this, Macedonians, or Corinthians, as you give. Remember this, verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Let me just editorially say, and if you care about God, that matters to you. Verse 13, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Paul had no problem saying that obedience is evidenced by giving. He says it quite clearly there. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. What's the evidence of that grace? You're willing to pour out wealth 
to help others. Thanks be to God for, this in, for his indescribable gift. In other words, the basis of it all is the work of Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. We see enthusiasm here, without grudging, verse 5. Motivated by the faith that God will reward, verses 6 through 11. This giving should not be dictated to us by others, verse 7. It is not a matter of compulsion, but we are to enthusiastically contribute to God's cause with the intention of putting praises on the lips of others, verses 12 through 14. And as I said, all of it, verse 15, is to be done as a heart response of joy for the Savior who gave His all for us. We are to give freely, willingly, enthusiastically as a means of expressing and increasing our joy in the Lord. We're to be a community of believers who do not love material wealth, but who love God and use our resources to increase His praise. Knowing all along that God will never remain anyone's debtor, but will ever remain our Father and benefactor and will thus reward every penny that we give to His glory. I was heartened recently when a couple in our assembly met with me and made a sizable sum available to one of our missionaries. I was awed and uh, commended their spirit of sacrifice, and I'll never, I don't think, forget, haven't to this day, the response. It's God's money. We just move it around. That is so well said. Maybe I should just say that here, <laughs> say all, all these words. But of course, they reflect the spirit of the words of Scripture. It's God's money. We just move it around. And so it is. And what a privilege to be part of an assembly in which such grace is routinely evidenced. There are people in this church who have that philosophy. It's God's money. We just move it around. And it's a joy to watch as God pours out grace upon us and moves people to demonstrate with the tool of wealth that God owns it all. That money is not our master. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. That there is an eternity in which we invest by faith. That we can, as an assembly, put praises to God on the lips of His people. May God continue to nurture that grace among us. Wealth is an idol, particularly in this land. It's an idol. We're to pick it up by the throat. We're to turn it upside down and we're to use it as a hammer to build the household of God to the glory of His name. Is the idol of wealth a hammer in your hand for God, or is it an idol on your shelf to which you bow? If we give in to this idol, if we worship money, we have not been schooled by Jesus. We are not following the New Testament record. And there is a emptiness in our heart. It's my earnest prayer that we as a church, as an assembly, would grow in this area. That I would grow. That we would grow in this grace. Using wealth as a tool to express and to even discover our joy in the Lord. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, dear Father, for these words how they remind us of our weakness and of our shortcomings. But Lord, we praise You that You have given us this world to enjoy, and we do so without guilt. 
we do so with gladness in our heart for all that you've given us and all that you've put into our trust to enjoy to your glory as our commission and we seek to do it. We thank you for health, for jobs. We thank you for the privilege of those even who struggle within our assembly to seek to be of aid and to be of help. And, and we thank you, dear God, for the privilege that we have as your people to use wealth to your glory. And we have certainly known some very lean and hard times as a church financially. But we do thank you for the grace that you're pouring out upon us. And it is a grace that seems to be parallel with the growing and increasing um, grace that is being evidenced in the hearts of people who are coming and who are learning to give in the way that you've called us to give. But Lord, may your people please be reminded. Help them and teach them to see that this is not a matter of the bottom line dollar of a church. This is a matter of our heart relationship with you. If we don't get money right, 